Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Alan DeCaros will join us to discuss the monkey's voyage. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, how did the species of the world wind up where they are today? Scientists have long conjectured that plants and animals dispersed through the world by drifting on large land masses as they broke up. But is this true? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Alan DeCaros. Professor DeCaros is an adjunct professor of biology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and an expert on biogeography and evolution. He's published over 30 scientific articles, including a much-cited 2005 review cover article on ocean crossings in trends in ecology and evolution. He has authored the new book, The Monkey's Voyage, How Improbable Journeys Shape the History of Life, and we're very pleased to welcome you today on the uh, Grok Science Show. Professor DeCaros, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, uh, good to be here. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written, The Monkey's Voyage, which talk about how active journeys by uh, species have kind of given rise to uh, species of the world. I'm curious, how did you become interested in this topic? Well, actually, yeah. So it kind of started with a trip to Baja, California. So I was studying garter snakes. That was kind of the main thing I was studying back then as as a group. Um, And I was actually studying their behavior, but that took me to Baja, California. And so my girlfriend, who's, who's now my wife, actually, we went down there and we collected snakes. But the weird thing about those snakes is that they're sort of a population of these garter snakes at the very tip of the Baja, California Peninsula. And then the other populations of that species are across the Sea of Cortez, kind of in in mainland Mexico, so to speak. So that sort of got me thinking, you know, like how did that population actually get there? And the old story had been that it was because Baja had at one point been part of the mainland, which, which is certainly true. So, and through tectonic movement, the, the peninsula had actually separated from the mainland and created the Sea of Cortez in the process. So that was kind of the story about how a lot of things had ended up with these kind of weird distributions where some of them were on the Baja side and some of them were on the mainland side of the Sea of Cortez. So that's kind of what got me interested in this whole problem, just thinking about these snakes and how they had ended up where they were. And it turned out when we did genetic studies on them, it was pretty clear that they were really closely related to the ones on the mainland side of the sea, which meant that they must have gotten to the peninsula very recently, and, and that therefore meant that they must have crossed the sea to do it. So that's kind of a, a, you know, a pretty small example, but it's, it's what got me into this whole area of thinking about, well, biogeography in general, but also ocean crossings. And for the most part, scientists seem to think that the reason they wind up where they do is just because of separations of land masses and that, that isolate species, and there's no real active crossings. But yeah, well, I mean, I would I would never say that. I mean, certainly the the movement, you know, continental drift and other kinds of processes that break up land masses for rising sea level is another one that would do the same sort of thing. So those things are definitely important, but. Kind of what the book is about is, well, it, it goes through this, the whole history of this question of 
how do you get things, related groups, in two areas that are separated by seas or oceans? And what happened, I mean, it's kind of a, a long story, but one of the most recent things that happened is that with the validation of continental drift, there was this push to explain all of these weird distributions by continental drift, like the garter snake case as a small one, but also big flightless birds like ostriches in Africa and rias in South America that, you know, that was explained by continental drift and, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of other examples like that. People were just trying to push this idea that it was all due to continental drift. And so, in a way, my book is kind of a, and, and really what's been happening in the field of biogeography, the, the study of why things are where they are, what's been happening in that field for the last 20 years, and also the, what's the subject of my book, is that actually a lot of these things have crossed oceans recently. And so, in fact, a lot of the examples that people thought were due to continental drift probably are not. So that, that's kind of the, one of the main points of the book. What are some of the best cases of these crossings? Well, there's, there's a lot of really good cases. As far as striking cases, so the, the monkey case is pretty striking, I think, because so there are monkeys on both sides of the Atlantic, right? There are you know, baboons and many other kinds of monkeys in the old world and spider monkeys, howler monkeys, et cetera, in the new world. And they're obviously closely related to each other. Like all the evidence shows that morphology and DNA shows that, you know, monkeys are a good sort of evolutionary group. So and it's also pretty clear that they originated in the old world. So then the question is, how did they get to the new world? And it's becoming increasingly clear that they must have crossed the Atlantic Ocean to do it. So for one thing, they haven't, the monkey group hasn't been around long enough to have been affected by continental, well, by the separation of South America from Africa. So that can't be the explanation. And other people have said that, well, maybe monkeys came through Asia, crossed the Bering Land Bridge into Alaska, and then came down through North America. But the problem with that is that there aren't any fossils of monkeys in North America that would indicate that. So there are actually lots of fossils of primates in North America, but none of them are monkeys, or at least not until very recently when monkeys again came up from South America. So that route through Alaska doesn't make sense either because of the fossil record. So we're kind of left with this crossing of the Atlantic as the, the only real plausible explanation at this point. So that, that's a really striking example, but, you know, there are plenty of other ones. Um, like one of the things is that New Zealand, which, so New Zealand was part of the supercontinent of Gondwana at one point. And so people thought that New Zealand broke away from the rest of Gondwana and carried this Gondwanan flora and fauna with it. And the descendants of those original Gondwanan inhabitants are what we see today in New Zealand. But it's become really clear, again, mostly from genetic studies, that most of the things in New Zealand actually got there much more recently. And so they had to cross either from Australia or sometimes from much farther away, like South America, to get there. So that's another pretty, pretty striking example, I think. Uh, fascinating that this can occur. Are these rare events? Well, they're sort of both, I would say. So some things get across oceans all the time really easily, and that's actually really not what, what my book is about. So microbes, many kinds of microbes would be probably the best example of that. They just drift on the wind all the time, so you know it's very easy for them to cross oceans. And um, at least for some some microbes, the oceans are really, they're almost not really a barrier at all. But for most familiar kinds of organisms, like the plants and animals that we're used to thinking about, crossing a fairly large ocean is something that, you know, it's a pretty rare event. So like in the monkey case, 
there's only evidence of monkeys crossing the Atlantic once since the origin of monkeys something like 50 million years ago. So that was clearly a rare event. But part of the point of what's been happening in biogeography and the point of the book is that these rare events, you know, because there's been such a long time for things to happen, that these rare events have actually happened frequently enough that they've really changed the course of evolutionary history and really changed sort of the nature of the world. Just by the nature of impact that outweighs their preponderance. Yeah, I mean, so even though they're rare events, you know, they've actually happened enough times that they've had a huge effect. So so actually a good example of that would be South America, and particularly the mammals of South America. So monkeys got to South America from Africa, and most of the rodents of South America either got there by crossing the, or, or, or I should say they're descended from an ancestor that crossed the Atlantic for one group of rodents, or crossed the Caribbean or the Proto-Caribbean from North America. So actually, if you just count up all the mammals in South America, there's well over 400 species that are descended from these three groups that crossed oceans to get to South America. And in fact, now that's actually most of the mammal species in South America. So that's kind of a striking example of the impact of these ocean crossings on the nature of the modern world. But but there are many other examples like that, too. So New Zealand would be another example where today almost the whole flora in particular, almost all the plants of New Zealand are descended from things that crossed oceans. It's really a very fascinating situation. I mean, are there particular conditions that promote these rare crossings? Yeah, well, there's all, all kinds of things that affect whether this happens or not. I mean, the most obvious is just the kind of organism. So certain kinds of organisms are better at making crossings that, than others. So, for example, small lizards seem, or certain kinds of small lizards, I should say, seem to be pretty good at, at doing this. So there have been something like 10 crossings of the Atlantic by small lizards and snakes, and that's probably because of a couple of things. One is they don't, because they're cold-blooded, they sort of, they don't need as much food as a warm-blooded animal would need. So like a mouse of the same size would be burning up a lot more energy than a lizard. So a, a lizard might find itself on, a, on like a natural raft of vegetation that actually had plenty of food for it to, to make the crossing of the ocean, whereas that would be much more unlikely for something like you know a little mouse just because it needs a lot more food for a given amount of time. But the other thing is also, I mean, ocean currents, the direction of ocean currents is, is obviously really critical. So for things that are actually rafting across oceans, you know, whether they can pick up an ocean current that's going to take them across the ocean, you know, across the ocean and, and make land somewhere else, you know, is obviously critical. And, and then also stepping stone islands within an ocean are another thing that probably makes it easier for things to get across oceans so they can, they can do it in sort of a series of jumps, of small jumps instead of one giant leap. Do you think that these type of uh, events are still plausible today? Uh, modern development in the world has maybe inhibited some of the kind of crossings? No, I think they're still happening. In fact, you know, there there's actually a well-known case of these iguanas. This was in the Caribbean island of Anguilla. Somebody or some fishermen actually saw a natural raft come up on the shore and a bunch of iguanas got off the raft and, you know, made it onto the island. And they probably came from over 100 miles away. So, I mean, that's not a huge crossing, but it's still, you know, a rare kind of chance event. So it's pretty rare to actually see something like that, but these things are definitely still happening. So how do you go about, in your own work, studying these type of relationships? 
Well, mostly nowadays it's from DNA. Certainly uh, relationships were initially worked out using anatomy for the most part. I've actually done some work looking at how behavior can be used to connect different species to, you know, so if two species have some particular, especially if it's sort of an unusual behavior, you can often show that that behavior has been inherited from a common ancestor, so, and it connects two species in an evolutionary sense. But mostly nowadays it's from DNA sequences. So, you know, people look at the DNA sequences and, um, you know, the similarity, I mean, to put it very kind of simplistically, the similarity of DNA sequences indicates the sort of closeness of relationship between two species. Has this sort of idea now taken greater hold in terms of people thinking about how species are distributed? In the yeah, so I think that, like, if you had talked to people 20 years ago, and this would include me, and although I didn't really know that much about biogeography 20 years ago, but if you'd asked me, if you'd given me an example like, you know, the ostriches in Africa and the rias in South America, I would have said, oh, yeah, that's continental drift. That's because, you know, Africa and South America were together, and then they drifted apart. That's why those big flightless birds are on both continents or, you know, lots of other examples, I would, I would have said the same thing. And I think probably most people who were studying that sort of thing had that same view, that it's not that they necessarily didn't believe in things crossing oceans at all, but it was like the default explanation is continental drift. So if you see a weird distribution like the ostriches and rias, then automatically you start thinking about continental drift. And I think that because of all this new evidence, especially from DNA, that things have crossed oceans a lot more than people had thought. So now people are really sort of reassessing. So now I think it's, you know, at least for a lot of people, the default is no longer continental drift. I wouldn't say that the default is now that things crossed oceans, but it's more like, let's go into this with an open mind and let's see what the evidence tells us. We're not going to assume one thing or the other from the beginning. It sort of expands the way and possibility of how uh, populated the Earth and, as you put it, shaped the history of life on the planet. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I think that, I mean, that's the key point that comes out of this is that to a large extent what we see has been shaped by, you know, these things crossing oceans, even though it seems like in some ways a very implausible thing, but the road, I mean, with the mammals in South America or closer to home, there's this example of, well, let me back up a little bit, and the paleontologists who study primates are increasingly, or I, I should say at least some of them, a significant number, are, are now thinking that monkeys as a group originated in Asia, and people have thought before that they originated in Africa. And if it's true that the first monkeys came from Asia, then it also means that they had to cross the Tethys Sea to get to Africa at some point. Because when they appear in Africa, Africa at that time, Africa was actually an island, and it was separated from Asia by the Tethys Sea. So if monkeys originated in Asia, then it looks like they crossed the Tethys Sea to get to Africa, and so that was another one of these fluky ocean voyages. And that from a human perspective, the interesting thing about that is that that ancestor that crossed the Tethys Sea was our direct ancestor. So it, it gave rise to, to all the monkeys, and including the ones that would later cross the Atlantic Ocean, and it also gave rise to the apes, including us. So in, in a very direct sense, our existence might be because you know, some monkey accidentally crossed the toughest sea something like 50 million years ago. I think we, uh, we have much to give thanks for then uh, to that particular monkey then making that voyage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, I mean, I sort of think of it as, you know, like when people are 
thinking about their own lives. Like you often think, oh, if I, there was just some fluky thing that happened and that changed my whole life. You just happen to read a particular book or something, or you, you go out the door one morning at a particular time and you meet somebody that changed your life or whatever. So, I mean, almost, almost everybody can probably think of some fluky thing like that that changed your life. And the analogy here is that the same thing is sort of true on this grand scale of, you know, evolutionary history that these fluky events like monkeys crossing the Tethys Sea or the Atlantic Ocean, things that you would never have predicted beforehand, and, re- and they're really rare sort of improbable events, have totally changed you know, the history of the world. Well, it seems like the history of biology in general is littered with all these probable events that added up to eventually give rise to the world we see it today. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I I think that's you know completely true. It's not just these ocean crossings. And I think what's interesting about the ocean crossings as fluky events like this are that it's very clear that they're fluky events. So it's very clear, you know, you can point to the particular event like monkeys crossing the Atlantic, and you know, it's very clear that that's a chance event that sort of, to use um, an an analogy that Stephen Jay Gould created, if you ran the tape of life again and just changed some small thing at the beginning, you know, very likely, you know, monkeys wouldn't have crossed the Atlantic in, in in the second replay of history, or, you know, monkeys wouldn't have crossed the Tethys Sea. So, so that kind of thought experiment just shows that, you know, these things are really unpredictable. And, and also, they probably are things that would have seemed pretty insignificant at the time. Like when monkeys reached South America, I mean, it was probably just a, a very small group of monkeys. If you had been there and were going to predict what's going to happen to that group, you would probably just think, well, nothing. They're probably just going to go extinct within a, a generation or two, and, and nothing's going to come of it. But in fact, what happened is they blossomed into this large evolutionary group that now in the New World, there's you know like 130 species of monkeys or something like that. Well, it is truly fascinating. Uh, we, we are running slightly out of time, but I just want to mention again that author uh, of the new book, The Monkey's Voyage, How Improbable Journeys Shaped the History of Life, is uh, Professor Alan DeCatos. And we're very pleased again to have had you on the program. Uh, Professor DeCatos, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thanks a lot. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.